From 11FS, I'm David Burry, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you the winners of the latest RBS Remedies pool, Monzo heads over to Stateside, and Dave can help your credit score. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 333 of Fintech Insider. That was fun to say. We're coming to you live from the 11FS HQ in London town. My name is David Breer and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? It's going. My goodness. Facebook coin. Things are happening. Another big, big week in fintech. Wow. Do I finally have a good reason to open up Facebook again other than messages from my mum? No. Um, But if you want to know all about the Facebook coin, do check out Blockchain Insider uh, episode that was out this past Thursday. It's available on iTunes now. Nice. Was that a cop out of what episode number that was then? Yeah, completely forgot. I think it was 102 or 103. It was 101. Uh, uh, Producer Laura <laughs> in to save the day. Producer Laura saved me once again. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's uh, keep us going forwards. As always, we are definitely not alone in terms of what we're doing today. Uh, we have uh, Mr. Michael Fotis, CEO and founder of Smart Money People. How's it going? Good. Thanks for the Did invite. I get that right? Perfect. Oh, Perfect. man. Nailed it. Uh, Mr. Dean Butler, Head of Innovation at Prudential. How's it going, Dean? Hello. It's going very well. Thank you for having me. Very good. And Shafali Gupta, VP Strategy and Ops at Fluidly. Busy week for you guys. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> we'll come to that in a little while. More foreshadowing. We're, foreshadowing. we're getting very good at foreshadowing. Um, I mean, I find the more I read the show notes, the more I can foreshadow. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get on with the news. Speaking of foreshadowing, Pool D winners announced for the RBS Remedy stuff. So this is over on FinTech Futures. We had five winners in the latest RBS-derived funding round. Now, only if we had somebody who was part of the winners to potentially say what it means to them and accept this reward on behalf of... How'd it go? Big week. I saw... Like Caroline posting great pictures of big bottles of champagne. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So massive week for us. We're so very thrilled to have this opportunity and win this award. I mean, we know it's highly competitive and a lot of hard work went into it. And this actually, this funding means a lot to us in terms of our runway and where we can get to in terms of product and um, commercialization of our tech. So super exciting. Very cool. And the, I read through the public commitments. You're yeah. committing to some really interesting things. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, sure. So um, essentially what we're going to use the money for um, is two main things. So product development and then um, the sales side of things. So within product development, um, two main things. So actually, would it be helpful if I give a 20-second summary of what Fluidly does? Yeah, go for it. Okay, great. I mean, Caroline's great at doing the pitch. Like, <laughs> she, she, she's, done, she's done this a few times, but definitely do it, yeah. Okay, so um, I will be nowhere as good as Caroline, but essentially we are a software that forecasts cash flow and help. Uh, it's an intelligent cash management software for SMEs. Um, and so essentially, the on the product side, we want to build two things. One is... Um, an insights actions hub, which basically looks at the data of this SME and also benchmarking data across the industry um, and tells them uh, what in bite-sized pieces of information, what you what you should do um, based on what you can see on the data. So for example, if um, there's an HMRC tax bill coming up, uh, we will say, oh, you're running out of cash, maybe you should take out a, a credit. Or, or if you have excess cash, we'll say, well, maybe you should take out a savings product because you have this excess money and you can actually make a return on it. So that's the Insects and Actions Hub. And the other side of it is the financial marketplace where we're going to help you fulfill those actions. So credit products, saving products, and anything that would be helpful to SMEs. Fantastic. I mean, it's um, it's definitely a great service because it's kind of getting in and ahead of the stuff that, I mean, small customers just bump into as problems right now. Right. You know, how do you manage cash flow? How do you manage finances generally? So, exactly. Uh, I mean, five million pounds, that's going to be a, gonna go a long <laughs> way to sort of help that. Alongside you guys, there was uh, Kodat, uh, Form 3 funding options, and Swoop Finance, who were the uh, other parts of the lucky winners. And this is part of the 775 million, damn, that's a lot of money, uh, RBS uh, State Aid Alternative Remedies Package, which we lovingly refer to as the crew an unusual punishment. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, what do you guys think on this? 775 mil being dished out. I think the only one that we've still got to wait for is pool C now. Yeah. Weird that we did D before C, but like, I mean, who am I to challenge the alphabet, right? Yeah. Um, but what do you guys think? Is this going to shape up how SME banking generally is done in the UK? Or is this going to be, I mean, more of the same? What do you think? Uh, 
Time will tell with this one. If, if you look at the number 750 million, that's an astonishing number. If you also look at the number that some people spent on their actual pitch packs mm-hmm. for this money, it's also an astonishing number. So let's just hope they don't carry on spending money like that and they actually build something that's usable. Well, I, I really do like that there was a mix of the pools of funding. So we saw with Pool A, we had uh, you know some real startup banks in there, but with Pool B, we had some traditional banks. It feels like it's been quite balanced and and perhaps you know the greatest opportunity is now there for the market to to really do something interesting for small businesses that have frankly been woefully underserved historically. Um, small business bank accounts until quite recently were basically at the bottom end of the market, especially. We're just a retail bank account, but that you have to pay for the privilege. And a small business has all kinds of problems, like being able to, as you were saying, see that um, HM, you know, that tax bill that's coming, see that invoice that I might have missed that somebody should be paying uh should be paying me see that i i I might not make payroll because there's a dip in my cash like all of these things that fluidly and others do uh, but also some of the infrastructure stuff that supports businesses like fluidly and others to do interesting things i mean whilst it was a cruel and unusual punishment for rbs it does it has created a hive of activity a lot of it possibly on powerpoint but a lot of it (laughs) but a lot of it doing really interesting things and a good mix of people yeah it's it's a super interesting um opportunity we've had a few calls from businesses actually calling us up saying rbs have offered us money to leave who should we move to are starling legit who the is tied Um, (laughs) i think that's where the challenge comes from um and actually my personal view that is if the economy does dip over the next few months, most SMEs are going to go for the big brands and the big names that they've come to believe are more secure and more uh, strong. Um, so I think there is a window of opportunity, but it is potentially quite small. What's exciting to see as well is this is driving true innovation in fintechs. You know, when we've seen a number of fintechs actually rise up and receive substantial amounts of funding. And that's only going to be a good thing for the end customer. If you look at SMEs, their projections and their credit flow and just working day to day, if you're able to build a product which actually demonstrates how they can move forward, which better serves them, but not only that, then gives them an endpoint in which to purchase something, it's going to be a great output. I mean, you've got five startups here giving away no equity to get £5 million that's a wonderfully amazing thing, you know, like, so being in a situation where essentially you've got that potential to, I know you're matching the investment, aren't you? But being in a situation where essentially you can double the investment potential into something you really believe in, that's phenomenal. So, I mean, it, it is weird how much good is coming out of something so weird, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's going to be really um, amazing in the market. If you kind of, um, every indicator is that we're going to be going into a period where actually it's going to be harder to get capital than it is yeah. today, then, I mean, this sets up people really trying to do disruptive stuff in the SME space for years, which is great. You know, hopefully it lets everybody weather the the, the winter, essentially. Uh, on, on Thursday, as we record this, uh, Mark Carney has come out and said that we're projecting sort of almost zero growth in the second half of the year in the UK. So, Cheers, uh, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> Yay, optimism. Uh, but, but actually, that means this is really timely because who are the first to feel that? It's, it's often the small businesses. It's often the ones with cash flow problems. So uh, the ability to not only have choice in bank accounts, but choice in lending providers, which especially as Paul C comes along, could be really well timed. And I completely agree about the innovation point and the disruption, because if you look at the public commitments that have come through from pools A, B, and D, um, you can see how many SMEs are going to be impacted over the three to five years. And because this genuinely drives choice and competition in the market in new and innovative ways, I think this is really going to make a difference. Mm. Okay, moving on to our next story that was over on Yahoo Finance. So this is Monzo Heads Stateside. So startup bank Monzo heads to the US as a monthly sign-up hits 250,000 people. Dang. Uh, Monzo has announced plans to launch in the US, its first market outside of the UK, and I mean, I think this one's kind of been coming for a while, hasn't it? Yeah. I think, didn't you do an interview with Tom ages and ages ago where he basically said, we want to be the first challenger bank that has a billion customers? Yeah. Which, I mean, even in my tiny maths brain could figure that they need to get out of England at some point. I think that used to be the cover of their investor deck at one point. I think they, they've now changed that 
to to something different as a mission statement but still it was a heck of a statement of intent at, at one point and it's been probably the worst kept secret in history that the challengers from the uk are looking at the us market although we've seen uh, revolut open in australia at the same time and we've seen uh, other things like that happen and other people eyeing the asian market uh, but n26 of course have, have looked at this market as well so uh, it feels like um yeah the worst kept secret ever but the the plans to launch in the us are being done the way they did it here in the uk which is they're not going big they're not trying to open everywhere at once they're starting with a small group of people when uh, a series of in-person sign-up events in San Francisco, New York, and other major cities. And I think a lot of people miss that because, well, yes, Monzo has 2 million customers in the UK now, and you can say what you want about, do they have the salary account or not? 2 million customers is a lot of customers. Uh, and in the US, they're not going, we're going to have 2 million overnight. They're saying, no, we're going to start small. We're going to work with these in-person events, and we're going to um, also partner as well, which I thought was a really interesting point. So they're launching in partnership with, was it um, Sutton Bank, David? Yeah, so I, I guess that's similar to the approach that they sort of took here to a certain degree, right? Mm-hmm. Using somebody else's mm-hmm. regulatory presence to kind of get into market. But I mean, I mean, I, I like Monzo. I think this is a good thing, but I'm quite skeptical about how successful it will be, if I'm honest with you. Given the amount of challenges that there actually are, you know, people like Chime uh, in the US. I mean, essentially what they're talking about doing is trying to do you know, 50 times what they've done here to try and make themselves successful over in the US, which I think, I'm not sure US humans are like really into British things beyond like, I don't know, Q Grant and Mr. B, do you know what I mean? Like, so I'm not sure that we're going to have that sort of cheeky chappy Londoner vibe that we can sell you a bank as well. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see what they can do. But I think, I think Monza are in a funny territory right now. I think they, I think they really sort of struck a bit of a rocky patch when they tried to do the weird blue card Monzo Plus thing yeah. that just hasn't sort of resonated. And I, I fear a little bit like if they try and do too much, they're going to start doing lots of things badly rather than really sticking to their knitting and doing, you know, there's a long road that they've got to go still with the UK. And while 2 million is impressive, there's still a lot of ground to go. I echo your views. I like how they're dipping the toe in the market. They're leveraging somebody else's banking license. So they're not having to wade straight in and go in head against, you know, the financial regulations that sit across many counties in the US. Did say counties? Yeah, yeah. states. (laughs) They have counties too in the states. Uh, And then I like how they're launching it in different cities. They're not just going to go full bank across the US. And if you look at the size of different cities in the US, they are virtually the size of, you know, London plus three others. So just by making a small splash, they could actually make a big impact on their numbers. And we also live in a world now of hype, of the world of Instagram and Facebook. So if they're able to ride on the hype that they created in the UK and do something somewhat different, then I think they've got a strong chance. Yeah. I think the way they're entering the US is definitely on brand for them. Um, they created this sort of like hipsterish vibe with their like orange cards, coral cards, Hot. as they call it. <laughs> Hot coral. Yeah. Um, and so... I think that will do two things, right? So one, word of mouth. Millennials communicate about literally everything. And so that would create that kind of a buzz and also the media, right? So they'll catch on a little bit. So the early tech adopters will get it on. But um, I don't think that that would play into their volume game, which I, to be honest, I don't even know if that's where they're going. Mm. Yeah, and in a world where they're not yet profitable and trying to figure out the business model here, you know, it, it's, it's almost like the... Um, uh, best of form of defense is attack type vibe. Exactly. You know I mean? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So I don't have a Monzo card, which may have set me apart from this room and may get me get, booted get out, out very now. quickly. <laughs> um, fintech inside. <laughs> Challenge yeah, back. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a great statement of intent, right? Whether it works or not, we don't know. Um, and to your point, David, around um, as a form of attack, it's a statement of intent that they're not sitting around to be bought by Barclays for a billion pounds. Mm. They're ready to go global. And I think it also sets them apart from Starling, right? So today, consumers come to us and they say, what is the difference between Starling and Monzo? And actually, we can start to see a clear differentiator. Starling are going to be working on their business banking proposition significantly. They were one of the big winners of the RBS Remedies Fund, something which Monzo lost out to. Um, and now they're saying, essentially, look, 
while the UK handles uh, Boris's Brexit Britain, we're going to get on with um, betting betting the farm on, on the USA, which is a bold move. I think it is. And uh, it's interesting they're not going into a vacuum of challenger banks. You, you mentioned Chime. Um, there's also been moving and simple. There's Acorns have gone into debit cards. People use Venmo and the debit cards, Square Cash. There's a lot of US fintech happening. And so they're not, I think when they came and hit in the UK, they were able to create a bit of a movement and momentum in in a bit of a vacuum, not a massive vacuum. It was fairly easy to move money, but it was still kind of clunky going into your bank account, setting up a new payee. There are things like that that I think they genuinely made an improvement on uh, for most people. And, and for a lot of people, Monza was the first time they experienced it. Other challenge banks like Revolut and Starling may have been the first time they experienced it. That might not be true in the US. That And so that unique superpower is, is kind of taken away from them. But the only saving grace here is, is this a Monzo Plus? Is it doing too much too fast? Or is this sticking to type, sticking to what works and going for that small group of people that really love the product, iterating around what they need and, and only growing from there? Yeah, I think, think to your point, though, it's it, this, is, this is now... Um, while Starling are diversifying and going into other business areas that they can turn into a profitable thing, actually Monzo are, Monzo are still VC arbitrage, right? We're not, we haven't really seen a, I mean, I appreciate everybody's like, you're so usually pro Monzo. Like what's happened? Like have they annoyed you? No, but it's just like the reality of like a business that after four or five years isn't showing profit. I mean, at some point I would have just thought the regulator, if nobody else is going to start getting concerned, because I mean, if RBS didn't turn profit for five years, people would be very concerned. If RBS wasn't making a profit, but then decided to globally expand, people would be concerned. I think it's just almost like the... Some of the, and like I say, we, we, you know, we like the guys there. We like what they're doing, but I think there's almost a, you, you can get carried away doing too much with, you can acquire a lot of customers. Uh, and this is where, you know, not just fintech, but actually most startups that are very heavily VC backed to do it's pump to get lots and lots of users and then figure out profitability later slash maybe IPO and be, you know, not ever have to worry about it. Um, and I don't want them to get into that situation. I really want them to see them figure out how to make being honest and being trustworthy and being profitable, like not mutually exclusive things. And I hope for the same thing as well. Um, I wonder, though, about the time horizon here for profitability. And I think that's kind of what you're pointing at. The time horizon for you is is, is around four years. For a, for a traditional VC on a, on a tech startup, they always look at the seven to 10 year cycle. So are we, go, are we judging that too early? Is it two, three years down the line, we need to be looking for profit in their home market? And then sort of five, six years on in the US, seven years on in the US, we should start to look for profit. But also as an organization, they've really shied away from lending. And so if you're not going to lend, what is the other business model? And that's the question that's not answered. Mm. But I think it comes back to that is like, I mean, lending gets a bad rep, doesn't it? You know, and actually to your, to your point from a fluidly's perspective, actually uh, a loan at the right time is the right thing. Uh, but like a loan at the wrong time, I, it's like that um, every time you have a conversation with a bank, if they're just trying to sell you a loan, it's the wrong thing. Uh, if you, they actually understand what your needs are and actually what it is that the problems are that this would solve for you, then a loan is a perfect thing. So the idea that lending is bad and, you know, uh, and the sort of morality of it comes into it, I, I can see that they have taken that stance. Mm. And it feels it feels weird to me. But anyway, it might just be me. I think one thing probably definitely in their favor, and this is actually a, the next story to move on to, trying to reasonably seamlessly move it forwards, um, is the story of Reuters. But this was, um, you know, big banks still haven't got their shit together, which is, uh-huh. I guess, a sign of good opportunity for them to a certain degree. Yep. Um, and I found this one quite entertaining, but I'm going to let everybody else go first and then see where I decide to chime in on this one. But um, so this is US banks investments in tech is not actually making an impact on revenue. So bank investments in technology not yet driving significant revenue of growth. Uh, so this is an essential study that was released on Thursday that says the $1 trillion invested in traditional banking globally over the last three years to improve tech hasn't actually delivered anything. 
God, it hasn't delivered the revenue growth that had been expected. Uh, and it found that banks uh, that had advanced the most on digital were the most profitable and highly valuable as well. So if you are able to get to Nirvana, uh, then you, you end up being the most profitable. But it's almost like somebody did one of those PowerPoints you were talking about, Dean, that said the, the profit will come if you just invest in tech. But it's it, as you always say, David, it ain't what you do, it's the way you do it. Like investing in tech is fine, but what tech are you investing in? Are you investing in keeping the lights on on the tech you've got? Um, are you investing in lots of other things too and how good are those things and are you investing in the right way and, and are you measuring their success i think there's there's a lot of un- unanswered questions there yeah i mean my uh i mean what do you guys think and then i'll i mean i'm probably going to go for 20 minutes on this one after this so like go like get in here while you can would be my advice i think it's a, a brave statement for uh, accenture to make <laughs> given uh, given how they uh, <laughs> given how they make money globally um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that that's, that's, that's going to be 20 minutes of my point right now. It's like, <laughs> hasn't Accenture been at the scene of all of these crimes, essentially? Like in terms of the, so the, the point that they're making is a trillion over most US banks when they're in most US banks. And the big ones. Surely. And most of the big transformation programs at the big US banks are being led by... So I'm very confused by this. (laughs) This report is basically you've spent a load of money with us. It hasn't worked. So now you need to spend more money with us. The the guy who does knee surgery says knee surgery doesn't work. It's like, (laughs) I don't get it. So so are they, but the the point that they're making here is like, so the recommendation that they're making is moving forwards, banks focus on making more income for taking risks linked with running their balance sheet, which I'm like, Uh, the recommendation is make more money, right? Yeah, make more money by l- taking risks based on your balance sheet. So be a bank. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very confused by this one. I think essentially what they might be saying is that the revenue isn't actually growing, but the costs are coming down. Yeah. Uh, and that's how the investment in technology is actually like, like for example, reducing the number of physical branches or making um, processes faster. Um, but nothing really in the revenue growth side, which actually the challenger banks are seeing as well, right? They have all of this um, user base, but the revenue side of things are not that strong. Uh, I mean, the revenue side for Oak North is actually pretty great. Um, they've been profitable for quite some time, but their superpower has been identifying those pockets of risk. Uh, and actually, the maybe, maybe, if I was to really try and play the devil's advocate here um, in, for Accenture, is the interest rate and credit taking new, um, you know, taking risks linked with running the balance sheet. Does that mean identify pockets of risk better? Like, you, they could have meant that. And if they did, that would make sense, given Oak North have their superpower is small businesses. People didn't look at them in the same way. They really got to know the business. They looked at things that the bigger banks didn't. And, and now they're doing the same with entrepreneurs and mortgages. I mean, that that makes total sense. You should have written this report. Because, <laughs> like, in, in a sense of, like, like Goldman Sachs have done with Apple Card, right? Yep. You know, actually destroy somebody else's revenue model rather than trying to protect the existing one that you've got. Yep. Now, that makes total sense. That's not what this report says. Indeed. This, this report is basically saying, actually, people have spent a trillion. They probably spent a lot of it with us. Our bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. Right. Are they saying that they need to spend more to put it right? Well, yeah, I think that's what it is. Send send good money after bad. Um, if you've got a money bonfire, pour a little more on. Uh, why not? All right, on that note. Um, moving on, uh, sticking with the US though. So this is uh, another story. So over in American Banker, this is US big tech says no to fintech charter. So I mean, like Monzo coming into the US, big banks spending lots of money, but the US big techs, uh, particularly in this instance, Google and PayPal, while they've explored the OCC's fintech charter, have done so and then disappeared. So Google, PayPal, and apparently dozens of other technology companies have took a look at the uh, fintech charter that was set out by the Office of Control and Currency, which sounds a lot less cool than the OCC. Like the US definitely do branding really well, don't they? Yeah. Um, Have basically had a good look at what they're actually proposing and then just buggered off, unfortunately. So many technologies (laughs) and fintech companies operate under a national network of state licenses, and they don't want to then jeopardize those relationships from a state-to-state perspective. Um, I think if anything, I think the people when, what was it, two states started suing 
Was it they were suing the Yeah, New Fed? York came and started trying to sue the OCC um, the, uh, around, uh, I, I guess, especially the sun, uh, the sandbox. Uh, there was a statement from uh, one of the, I think, the, the, the lawyers in New York um, and some senior position said, um, children play in a sandbox, but regulators play with you know, uh, real money and real things. It was, it was all quite uh, handbags at 10 yards. That sounded very like they were sort of, Stroking a gun or something mm. at the time—that's quite uh, quite an uh, inflammatory. Uh, inf- uh, inflammatory. There we go. That's thank you. Um, but the the idea that essentially they're sort of running into all of these problems and that actually it was set up to try and incentivize new and interesting players kind of coming to this market who are now deciding it's best not to. Mm-hmm. I mean, this seems like quite a big problem given that to your point earlier on around creating more competition, allowing more players to come and kind of come into this space. If big tech isn't and now foreign fintech is, like that is that do we think that was the intent of this? There's two angles that struck me on this. The first one is the big techs backing away. Uh, why have the big techs backed away? Especially PayPal, who have a banking license in Luxembourg, have backed away from an OCC fintech charter. It makes me think that that's actually too politically risky as well as legal. Um, and you've got to see every everything in, in the US, I guess, through the lens of, of the politics there and uh, you know which branch of government is uh, which side of the uh, you know, kind of binary political divide. Uh, and you can and, and then things suddenly start to make a lot more sense about why different agencies and different states are arguing with each other. But there are a lot of states like Arizona and Illinois and even New York itself, the SEC, the CFTC. There are a lot of government agencies that have, if not sandboxes, then something like sandboxes that are doing a lot of outreach to fintechs. Delaware has done work. California has done work. So the states themselves are doing an awful lot. I think the one thing that the OCC fintech charter did was create a statement of intent that appears to have drawn a lot of European, maybe even Asian fintechs into the US market, also given a route out for some of the local fintechs towards debit cards and beyond. And we saw uh, this past week, there's a company called Synapse um, that got 30 million out of Andreessen Horowitz to do banking as a platform, banking as a service. There's a whole hive of activity that sort of looks like the UK three or four years ago. So even though it's a regulatory mess, let's not uh, underestimate the fact that it's created some momentum uh, in terms of fintech and the US could happen. But big tech's generally backing away doesn't doesn't surprise me from the OCC. But I don't think that means big tech is backing away from finance given you know, everything PayPal does and also given everything happening with Google Pay, XPays. And, and I think the lead that Apple really has in the, in the Apple Pay and now Apple Card space. I guess back to home then. So this is a story on the FT, which is the Bank of England reveals that challenges have challenges. Bank of England finds UK challenges are cutting corners. I think that's probably quite uh, a inflammatory little uh, headline right there. So the Bank of England have found that widespread weaknesses amongst the UK challenger banks in stress tests that show new lenders cutting corners in an aggressive pursuit of growth fighting talk from the FT right there. Uh, A senior regulator at the central bank wrote to chief executives this week, ordering them to tighten standards and correct over-optimistic risk modeling. I mean, they haven't actually said who, which is a bit weaselly. Yeah, they've said challenger banks and and UK challenger banks are the problem. But then they've also said um, new lenders are cutting corners. New lenders may not be challenger banks and some of the most aggressive new lenders and loan sharks and, and legal loan sharks are almost certainly not the, the challenger banks. So we, we, yeah, I think we need to be mindful of, I think there is a press, mainstream press narrative, particularly the FT and Telegraph, um, that seems to really have it in for uh, all things challenger bank at the moment. And it, it, it some of it is clearly warranted. Um, and the point made here about overly optimistic risk modeling is, you know, if you've not been through a cycle of lending, then absolutely, there's going to be things that come out in the wash. Uh, consumers and small businesses would be put at risk by people who just haven't been there before making assumptions that you know would allow you to grow in a boom market. But as we head into what could be a market uh, that's, that's going the other way, could be really, really bad. So it's one of those things where the headline writer has gone for one narrative. But actually, I think what the Bank of England said is, is something quite different. Mm. What do you guys think? So I view it as um, as really fair and long overdue, and particularly around mortgages, it's it's really no secret. Um, so when you talk about challenger banks, so uh, the Bank of England will be talking about banks like Metro Bank, uh, One Savings Bank, who traders Kent Reliance, Paragon Bank, who are trying to grow their balance sheets quite aggressively. 
Um, the fact is, when it comes to mortgages, that the big boys are the best. They have the highest satisfaction amongst customers as well as brokers, and they're also offering the most competitive products. The rates that we're seeing from the likes of Barclays and HSBC are the lowest of anyone in the market. And so in order to grow their balance sheets as aggressively as they need to, um, a number of challenger banks are very much going after the riskier part of the market. Um, So this is widely known within the mortgage space. Um, So I think it's a positive thing um, because ultimately it's unlikely to, to end well for some of these banks. And I also do think from the consumer perspective and the SME perspective, right, the big boys, as you say, uh, the banks will only lend to a certain segment of the market. And so there's this other underserved part that also obviously needs this credit. Um, and so even though there's, the, there's these alternative lenders and they might be over optimistic, I think it's we need to test the market and we need to see how we can price that risk right. One person's overly risky, overly optimistic is another person's financial inclusion. And it's always a, a fine line with these things. And, and thank you for that. I was not aware it was it was mortgage related. I think I've seen a swathe of headlines recently in, in the financial press going after hipster trendy cards and, and this sort of thing that, that really does appear to be uh, kind of tear that down. But the, the point around mortgages and, and so I think we need a, a a nuanced language around challenges because it's this catch-all of of different organizations you know to some it's the mobile only digital banks to some it's just somebody that's set up in the past 10 years like what is it yeah a charter savings bank is nothing like monzo and is nothing like atom bank they're very different they're, and all three and which is very different to oak north which is ex- exactly but it that that is a really interesting point though because if you're in a situation where like my mum reading that headline like suddenly you're worried about anybody who hasn't been in operation for the last 300 years you know like so yes. so anything that kind of gets in that catch-all of like new stuff um in a period where you know the fca and everybody's been pushing so hard for creating new organizations creating competition in the market um you know fintech generally could be quite damaged by i mean vague headlines that are kind of written in mainstream press worrying bingo all right um there was one other story that kind of came out of uh the ft that i actually found super super interesting as well before we sort of move on but those guys have clearly been very busy this week um did you guys catch that uh story that came out it was kevin hollenrake was accused of hiding conflict of interest did you guys see this i only saw it because you posted it in our slack channel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it was really 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 interesting so basically uh i'm gonna summarize the um i mean 35 40 minute rabbit hole i went into on this one at like six o'clock in the morning when i woke up this morning um so because that's um, how cool you are. yeah some events might be dramatized by it was 6 a.m in the morning and i can't remember all the details um but essentially a trade body has been established to allow uh mps to look at uh, some of the malpractice that have been set up in cases against bank rang- uh, bank wrongdoing when it comes to uh, small businesses. Now, it transpires that the guy who was set up to actually run this business has actually been shut down by one of the banks. Now, um, apparently a couple of the big banks have basically gone to um, one of the big news outlets, it's not clear which, to basically talk about this and say, Hey, maybe this guy's probably not really the most, in, you know, balanced guy to really sort of take this one seriously. And maybe you should have a look at whether his intentions are maybe more personal and a bit of a vendetta than it is, uh, like an impartial, let's make sure everything's fine, which is sort of an interesting one. It's almost, it, this is their interesting out on some of these things. But did you guys, did anybody catch this or am I just talking about something you've not heard of? No. So what I would suggest that you do is anybody who's listening to this right now is the letter that he openly wrote about it that was then posted, we should link to in the show notes because it's really, really sort of interesting sort of reading. Uh, and we'll probably come back to this as this one transpires because it's not done yet. Uh, there's this sort of looming, this is sort of news before it's news because there's this looming um, threat of all of this sort of going to the press and being written about, which between this Thursday show and next Thursday show will no doubt come out. So we'll come back to this one next week. All right. On that note, let's take a bit of a break. This deal sets apart to a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Uh, clearly, the pressure is beginning. British jobs and the rules of the European Union. Brexit. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. 
For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Um, if you did not know, we're hiring right now. So check out 11FS.com forward slash careers to find your dream job. Da-da. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think there needs <laughs> you to You tried be... to do a jingle there, didn't and, you? Uh, I mean, like, if I could get a job that's doing jingles, that'd be great fun. I mean, we've got jobs kind of across the board right now, either in the consulting side of things with product design or technology, in research and benchmarking, or building out what we're doing with Foundry. And doing some really interesting work, building the future of core banking, building the you know, really interesting propositions in really interesting parts of the world. I love my job. <laughs> not gonna lie it's really fun but it's also getting to work with some awesome people so shout out to all the 11 fs's that are already here as well indeed all right back to the news so over on TechCrunch, this one so this is rbs bow bags loot staff after they ran out of cash so after loot runs out of cash founder and 17 team members have joined rbs digital bank bow so this is ollie Perdue, the founder of loot the current account aimed at millennials uh, shortly after going into administration uh, last month as they ran out of cash uh, i've all decided to go over and join bow so that's kind of an interesting move like this is i mean perplexing i'm gonna say is my summary of this one essentially rbs bought was it five million pounds worth of shares in in uh loot which then went into administration and then they acquired all of their humans that happened <laughs> fast <laughs> would anybody else like to make comments on this one there's obviously some secret sauce that we don't know about behind the scenes it's it's not cash management but they know something that we don't yeah i mean it's interesting uh, either RBS didn't do their due diligence correctly to put three million into it in the first place, or something has happened since they put the money into it to have a problem from a cash flow perspective to get them into this circumstance, which is perplexing on both sides, isn't it? I think whichever way it plays out, Oli Perdue has been around in the fintech space. He was one of the uh, one of the originals and uh, had built a really talented team. I think uh, Loot was a product loved by its customers. So. Uh, if nothing else, I hope loot in some way the product and its customers. You know everything works out for them, uh, and I hope the team you know go on to doing things that they absolutely love to do and and really really enjoy because uh, that's a lot of talent that's just gone into that organization. Uh, can they keep it? Can they retain it? Will they love what they're doing in their new place? You know it's a real opportunity to inject some startup talent into into an organization. So um, you know shout out to those guys. They've um, they've obviously done well, and and they still have uh, a lot of tube advertising. So they, um, they, you know, they've been out there for a while. Do you know what, something that I did here, and it sort of speaks to um, Ollie and Teams kind of um, cred. There is um, when this happens, they actually called around a lot of startups in London to try and ensure that actually everybody who they, you know, built together as a big team had something to go to ensure that they could live, you know, pay their mortgage, put pay for bills, those types of things. And I think that speaks a lot to, um, like you say, the credibility of the team that they put in place. There's a, there's a fintech community that people often don't talk about that we just live in every day. And if, if, if you're not aware of it, it's really incredible how there is just a network of people that try and help each other out. And I think that's an amazing story. Indeed. What do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. And to your point about, you know, hopefully the talent doesn't get lost somewhere in RBS's um, deep, dark crevices. They did say that Bo um, is built on separate tech and it's kind of away from the legacy of the RBS um, lot. So hopefully, you know, something good will come out of it. It's really good to see that they bought into the people. You know, they bought into Oli. Oli's got obviously an amazing team behind him. You know, and whilst this venture didn't succeed, that's a great team. And Oli's going to take it and hopefully it'll smash it in the new roles. Fingers crossed. 
Yeah, I mean, I just hope the story gets written up because uh, uh, it's really easy to see a success, but actually understanding what went wrong um, is also quite important, I think, mm -hmm. for the community. I would completely agree. I think we need to be very, very good at knowing what went wrong and having the hard conversations. Um, and, and actually that builds credibility in a massive way with, with everyone internally, externally, that ability to say this didn't go the way we hoped is, is really powerful. Hmm. I don't think it's going to be the last time we see a big bank sort of acquire um, a startup. You know, we, we've seen it in lots of spaces. In fact, RBS bought, uh, what was the accounting three something agent agent free yeah. agent yeah so actually like they are doing this and that sort of makes sense if you can buy something understand it maintain it not lose the purpose of it in the first place it's probably a pretty good model for catching up on i, I wonder so there are a couple of, there's the simple bank in the u.s example where a lot of the talent left quite quickly mm. uh, it would be a real shame to see this happen and how do you there's a really interesting question of how does uh, an organization like a big bank who sees a real it's like for them it's a massive get to have all of this talent come into you so how do you keep them engaged how do you get the most of them hopefully they're landing in roles where they can really get fulfilled and, and run at what's in front of them indeed hokidoki uh moving on there is a story over on quartz uh so uber pivots to fintech uh, but this is nothing new so uber is pivoting to fintech something asian startups have been doing for some time now um uber the cash burning ride hailing service Wow, we went for them on that one. That was nice. Uh, is reportedly making a big push into financial services technology. So, I mean, we've seen big companies over in Asia do this. You know, Grab are really sort of, I guess, at the forefront of doing that over in Singapore, right? Yeah, Grab, but also Gojek. Um, there's a lot of plays at being the super app uh, in that part of the world and ride hailers that, that kind of get into that. Uh, partially because um, there's, uh, there's just a... There's not as common that people have debit cards like you would have in the West. So you you actually need to have that cash-in, cash-out facility. Grab drivers outside of Singapore typically are cash-in, cash-out agents into the Grab wallet. And the Grab wallet is then something you can use uh, in, in merchants. Also, India's Ola uh, made fintech a priority in 2015. Um, and, so, and then the payment app that they created, uh, Ola Money, is now a standalone app. So yeah, there's there's definitely Uber learning from uh, Grab here, I think, and Gojek and others. I mean, it's an interesting one that at some point your employee base is so big that you start monetizing them in weird and wonderful ways. Like I, there's something sort of using all of the pieces to that, which seems very sensible, doesn't it? It does. And and Uber's been toying at this for some time. They, they've got a cash app and they launched a branded credit card a few years ago. Um, but this appears to be them sort of taking their time in different markets. I, I sort of look at, you know, you've got Ant Financial and with Alipay and WeChat and those Chinese super apps that have ride hailing as a part of what they do. Uber's kind of coming in the other way. And in, and in Western markets, you know, we have Uber, the ride hailing app, Uber Eats. We have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have WhatsApp, and we have this design pattern that's these separate apps that are part of the same network. In Asia, the, the, the sort of design pattern is very different. You have one app and inside that one app, you can kind of do everything. So it's, it's a lot easier to take some users and move them from the core thing they're doing to that next thing, to, to that next thing. So it's really interesting to see what is Uber going to go after here? What's their big push into financial services going to be? Because they've been doing a lot of um, partnerships around insurance for their drivers, around financial services for their drivers, around real-time payouts uh, and that side of it. But what do you do on the uh, the rider side? What does the rider or what does the, the food delivery customer, uh, what, what job can you do for them better than somebody else that's already in the market? And I genuinely um, don't know the easy answer to that uh, unless you can start to offer something in terms of uh, brand perception uh, and, and do it around subscriptions. So we've seen Uber has uh, rolled out their Uber Black and their subscription model in the US. Does that give you this scarcity, this brand, this lifestyle piece that's really, really interesting? So the type of person that takes a lot of Ubers, gets a lot of Uber Eats, probably is reasonably affluent. You could make something that's pretty aspirational in terms of a card and an identity around it. Is that it? Is it something else? Don't know. I mean, has Uber got a brand these days that everybody wants to affiliate with? What do you guys think? Like, is it at that stage or like maybe like four years ago, right? I think it's less about it being a standalone ride-healing app or Uber Eats type thing. I think it's 
essentially a platform that has scale and has um, consumers connected their bank accounts to it. And that's why it makes an easy step into the payments bit. And um, <clears throat> in terms of what is it that Uber can provide that other banks, for example, can't provide, um, the I know the Uber credit card has, I think it's between 2 and 4% cash back yeah. on um, ride hailing or Uber Eats, which is actually brilliant because the more I use my Uber app, the more cash back I'll get. And that's just a cycle that will make me want to use them more and more. So I I'm think it's a no money by taking a taxi. <laughs> What's really different is you know, if you go into Gojek or um, Grab uh, and you're in Southeast Asia, to a Western eye, they look really messy. It's offers and discounts and cashback. But also the banks in those regions offer 10% cashback, 8% cashback, which is which is completely unheard of in, in sort of Western Europe because interchange is lower. And in the US, you get it. Um, but in the US, they talk about affinity versus reward. And can Uber do something with in the US with affinity and reward? Um, I think that's an interesting question because if you look at sort of brand permission, you've got two axes. You've got um, warmth and likability, and then you've kind of got dominant and competent. Warmth and likability, Uber, maybe not. Dominant, competent, um, actually, that's not a bad place to be. Brands that are dominant and competent are Rolex. Apple are dominant and competent because they're so big and they have scale. So you can still do something with lifestyle um, if, if you're in that brand position. Yeah, so I see this as a really interesting playbook for some of the kind of bigger, more traditional uh, firms out there. And we only have to look uh, back across the pond. So Delta Airlines uh, told us that they made $3.4 last year from their credit card um, partnership with Amex. And they're aiming to drive that to $7 billion, uh, by 2023. Now, 3.4 billion was seven and a half percent of their revenue, and there is no doubt that the, the credit card revenue is is their mo the most profitable part of that business. Um, so it isn't just uh, cool fintechs uh, in Asia, but actually we don't have to look that far away to see diversification of revenue and monetizing those eyeballs and those consumers is absolutely key. Whether you're a Monzo or whether you're a Delta Airlines, and if you're a ride-hailing big tech that is burning cash, I think all of them are looking at fintech as their way as to how they hit profitability because banking done right with enough eyeballs and enough scale is a great way to make money as you say um so do they what is that brand permission that they have i really liked has anybody seen the new city mapper pass that they've done in london um this is this is a new app that was launched so um city mapper have released uh, i think it's about 100 pounds a month there's a limited number of users it's all you can eat ride hailing um the bikes uh, london bikes transport for london inside of zone one and zone two 100 pounds which if you live inside zone one and zone two is actually a discount over the the kind of the monthly fare anyway and yet you can get all you can eat ride hailing that's amazing that's incredible offer and that's one of those things that seems like an incredible offer but only certain people get there i have that scarcity and that limit so i look at things like that and think is there something whereby you know you could really experiment with where the beachhead is here and, and have a real play with it I, oh sorry I, i'm a little perplexed as a uber user why would i want them to manage my money as potentially a driver, I could see why that would appeal to me because it becomes a benefit that the, the business offers me. Runner. Yes. Yeah. But as a customer, I use them for Uber Eats and for getting a taxi. What else are they going to offer me that a fintech challenger bank isn't or one of incumbent isn't? I think the driver side is the no-brainer. The interesting thing is they've done that mostly with partnerships. So how much value can they extract there? And the other thing is for their profitability, their driver side probably doesn't make the business case stack up. So their rider side is going to have far more eyeballs and far more users and far more profitable eyeballs and users. Unfortunately, often the drivers are not making the income that would make the business case make sense. So I take your point, though, which is, okay, but what's that compelling reason I have to use this thing is, is kind of missing. But that's what I was pointing out with the City Mapper app pass. If they didn't say um, that this is this is something to manage your money, if they said this is an all-you-can-eat pass to uh, kind of getting around London and it comes with a card, you'd be like, give me the card then. And so brand permission and what you, the first thing you do on the journey to becoming sort of the, the all-you-can-eat ride-hailing, you know, kind of the, the PFM manage your money, the first thing you do and the last thing you do might not be the same. I mean, it comes back to that point. I mean, oh, God damn, I can't believe I'm doing this. It comes back to that point that essentially we're making in that report earlier on. Oh, damn it. Oh, God. Um, that actually like going after somebody else's revenue model rather than just protecting your own actually makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, but... I mean, in a world where you've got a lot of customers, bear with me for a second. You, have a, lot, you. you have a lot of customers, right? I'm there. Imagine you're a big CEO who has a lot of customers. And then you're like, I'm going to go after somebody else's thing. Like, why are 
people doing that to big banks and not big banks doing that to other people. You know, big banks are in a situation when they've got tens of millions of customers to actually build off of. Why have they been so bad at doing bank assurance when actually that seems like such an obvious place to kind of go to to sell other things to? What, what's the problem there? I, I wonder if it's an execution thing and a DNA thing. Um, and can is what you're pointing at like a real opportunity? Yeah. Like because there's you've got a customer base. What you could do is do something that doesn't mean you're doing just pure banking. You're doing something slightly different. That's an opportunity for growth. I, to the extent your point earlier, I think we all agree looking for growth is is absolutely the top line strategic thing. So going after those pools just makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean in in um, in a banking sense, when margins are being squeezed and everybody's you know worried about the uh, you know the the sort of um, you know, the, the the rebels at the gates type thing, then, I mean, while you're fighting these guys, like, go try and take somebody else's revenue to a certain degree. So, yeah. Do you know, I know, I'm going to, like, Ross McEwen, if you're listening, like, <laughs> this is the play. Stop trying to acquire small startups. Like, go take on, like, a big organization type thing. But it's, you know, it is the, it is the point because it's like, actually, at what point, I mean, after 300 years, do you just stop expanding? Yeah. You know, Uber 200 and what? 90 years from now or whatever it is do they stop expanding into other people's territory and ossify in terms of what they do isn't it more that the incumbents are comfortable they are still making money hand over fist if you look at their reports you know quarter on quarter they're not losing money if you look at uber they are losing money so they're they're having to pivot they're having to say they're having very different board meetings to what an incumbent bank is having but i think the share price story is quite different for uber than it is for uh for the for the bank ceos at the moment they're they're looking at what is the growth story what is going to be the the cost income story that gets me to something different than i'm just rising and falling with with the bank of england's uh, rates which don't look like they're going up anytime soon so i'm not going to hit the the good old days aren't coming back uh if anything they're going away uh, what's that story I start to tell and, and what's that thing I can do uh, if there are these massive platforms out there with lots of users on them but that are you know really trying and poking around at how they get into fintech but they just can't get the license they're backing away from the OCC charter you're seeing them dabble and dabble and dabble and not try to be able to get there you've got this superpower that you could go play to which is I got the licenses just need to execute on something different that I think that opportunity is almost too good to pass up yeah I mean Big banks have been created by a sort of swashbuckling level of mergers and acquisitions over mm-hmm. a long period of time. And actually, almost that's subsided a little bit, hasn't it, in terms of the uh, the global expansion that, that it was. So It's not geographic anymore. But So if you're not expanding geographically, an M&A is not the, the answer. It, we have seen it with CYPG and Virgin Money. That's an answer still clearly. But there's got to be something else in the kit bag now that's that's available, especially given the the availability of some of these platforms, the amount of users and eyeballs on them, the data you can pull in from those platforms and the interesting things that you could quickly do on the back of it. Hmm. What do you guys think? Do we need the good old days of M&As for big banks kind of going back? bringing sort of back or I mean is is this something that banks should be considering in terms of outgunning other people or do you think they should sort of stick to their knitting um, so I think the the strategy that I think is is the most interesting to me is, is the one that RBS have adopted, right? So they've gone off and they started Esme Loans and they started Metal and we've got Bo coming up. And I think that's a really interesting strategy when you've got such a dominant brand like NatWest. Why do you go off and spend millions trying to get um, consumers and businesses to know all these new brands? But I don't think the, the industry doesn't really have a clear answer to this question. Um, it's kind of wait and see for most banks. And actually internally, a lot of them are still firefighting and and they're trying to keep up with their competitors. Uh, so from a mortgage perspective, you're trying to keep up with the guy that's below you and the guy that's above you. And that's actually determining their outlook to, to quite a significant degree. I think it's also slightly different um, depending on the market you're in. So the UK versus the US, for example. In the US, I often find that there's more collaboration between the banks and the fintechs. Um, and I find that, for example, Simple was bought by BBVA. And, you know, uh, there was just a bunch of other, other like more collaborative plays. Um, I wonder if it's in part due to regu- regulatory um, environments or if it's because of consumer mindset in that the US is just slightly more like a lot more behind in the fintech world than the UK. 
Um, so, you know, how the UK is already at contactless and uh, challenger banks are like pretty prolific. In the US, it's like magnetic stripes. Uh, we, they still have to get to chip and pin and then contactless. And then, you know, consumer trust with the banking um, industry is also like pretty low. So I think there's various factors playing into that. I, I see that banks can pivot, but I, right now I believe they can only pivot in the world of financial services and they can target their guns at a new product or a product that they're not serving servicing as well as they currently do today. I've seen a lot of customer studies and been involved in them where customers are saying, I want you as a bank to do what's best for my financial services and my situation. They're not saying, I want you to go away and build a new Uber for me. Um so I, I can't see banks moving out of the stratosphere of financial services, but they should be doing more in the world of managing my everyday money, my yeah, spend it's, it's and my future. end-to-end journeys, yeah. isn't it? it it's, it's about those end-to-end journeys and, and moving from just selling commodity products to kind of connecting that into a service that, that really recognizes that you exist outside of the bank and not just aggregating your account data, but realizing that you have other accounts with other platforms and what can I do if I bring that together and really move into, you know, sort of like the private banker in your pocket, this idea that I, I know about you and I know what you're looking for. I'm trying to do the best thing for you and anticipate things that are coming up in the future. Agree. Um, so I guess one person who is trying to make that world better is the next story. This is Dave helping you build your credit score. Mm. Everybody knows a Dave, don't they? It's wonderful. <laughs> um, so this is a story over on Business Insider. So Dave, a fintech startup backed by Mark Cuban and somebody I've no idea who it is. Who's Diplo? Anybody idea? I've never heard of him. Yeah. Okay. Famous person we've never heard of. I'm going uh, to say it's music. Yeah. It sounds like it might be. Yeah. Um, so apparently launching a checking account that helps users build their credit score. So this is an LA-based company um, backed by lots of, oh, DJ Diplo. Nailed it. Um, they're rolling out a new checking product. Uh, really looking at actually sort of consolidating a bunch of different things together. So it's going to be reporting all rent payments to the credit agencies. Um, and a new feature that's just been launched actually is uh, how to help customers build their credit score by planning and reporting utility payments in various different ways. Um, seems interesting. I guess this is like the trend of sort of moving, I guess, more and more to a service. So, you know, similar with Fluidly, this is not about you buy a alone you buy a product this is about being in a situation where you're actually you're working with somebody who to your point is actually on your side um and that's kind of an interesting context i'm not sure about the name with dave but uh i mean as a david i've never liked being called dave so uh it doesn't work for me but um, so this is a complete tangent um but uh, has anybody heard of burnley savings and loans.co.uk yes um so do you want to tell the story um, so it was a part of a Channel Four documentary, right? So yeah. it started it's, by a this local is the Bank of Dave, isn't it? Bank yeah. of Dave. It was Bank on Dave because you can't call it the Bank of Dave um, because it wasn't a regulated bank. It was a credit union, right? Yes. Um, so yeah, this uh, f- quite a well-known entrepreneur in Burnley. <laughs> I think he started with a, a fleet of minibuses for hire, yeah. um, and he got fed up with the bank, so he decided to start his own, yeah. um, in uh, offering kind of better savings rates uh, than a typical institution, but uh, as a credit union, I believe it's still going. It's, it's still, still going. So it's one and, branch. And they've recently um, they've recently expanded from two to three staff, um, and the con- t- company continues to make decisions based on the experience of good old fashioned common sense. Apparently, making a difference to small businesses and quote real people. Um, and has also helped a large number of different charities and good causes along the way. Um, if you've got some time this weekend on YouTube, check out the documentary Bank on Dave. It was absolutely fantastic. Tangent aside, um, there's a really interesting company called Credit Ladder that's been around in the UK for quite some time, does something quite similar. Uh, sends uh, you know, If you pay your rent on time, it sends that to the credit rating rating agencies. And I think any credit builder app is, a, is generally a really good thing and should be welcomed. Um, but the backers here are, are quite major, and I think that's substantial. No, I completely agree that, um, you know, you're helping people who have a poor credit score, so especially students and young adults who are really trying to uh, build their credit score to get their first home or um, get get a loan. And if you want to get the best rates, and it's, I, I just find that it's actually a really good thing that they're working towards. I think uh, Dave's a phenomenal name for what it's worth and a lot better than Bo. 
Come on. <laughs> we're British. We can't, can't have a bank called Bo. Um, but it's also very in keeping with Mark Cuban, right? So Mark Cuban's quite a well-known uh, billionaire based in uh, te- Texas, but very much a, a man of the people type of billionaire. So I think Dave very much fits in uh, with his persona. A checking account that helps you build your credit score. Uh, I think th- there's almost nothing to this like here. I wish them well. Um, and uh, I think that forecast of what their account balance will look like before next payday by analyzing their monthly bills is always interesting because in the UK, you'd have that issue of advice guidance, mm. kind of that fine line. Um, but the, if you're saying you'll have uh, $1,700 in your account on Monday, but their $1,500 rent is coming out on Wednesday, the app will send an alert say that they only have $200 to spend until payday. So I think there's some simple math there that you can do that's like, okay, this is... And I think it was probably Moven that were the first to do this with a safe to spend limit way back in the day. Um, no, but simple, safe to spend, wasn't it? Si- simple was safe to spend. Yeah, my, my bad. Apologies, uh, Shamir. Um, but I think that concept is, has been around for a while. But what's happening here is just the sheer amount of people trying to do this in the US market in the context of Monzo entering, Chime, Varro. There's a lot of people trying to get that done there at the moment. And I think if, if I'm an incumbent, uh, it was interesting last week we talked about uh, Finn by Chase being closed down. Um, but there were also rumors that JP Morgan Chase is trying to do another challenger. I don't think we've seen the end of the large organizations uh, trying to trying to come at this space. Uh, it's, it's really heating up. You just mentioned that Dave also is looking to start giving advice on what you should be doing with your money. You can already start seeing what the actual feature set of this product looks like in the future. You know, and they're starting by, it's truly a customer first proposition on helping to build that credit score. And then when they know more about you, they can help you make better informed decisions along your life path. Yeah. Thumbs up for Dave. I mean, as a branding thing, like we've had a lot of like bots come out, all of which, you know, like the series and Cortana, like you can see like an AI bot of Dave, can't you? Like there, and everybody would trust that, wouldn't they? Because like Dave won't do you any harm. I'm sorry, Dave. Everybody has a mate, Dave. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know, thinking about it, that didn't turn out too well, did it? All right. Moving on. This is possibly one of the most, most terrifying. And finally, stories I think we've ever done, having actually gone and had a good look at this. Um, So Amazon is selling a shock bracelet to help you curb bad habits. Um, So it's a new tool uh, sold on Amazon for $200, uh, a smart wearable device that helps you break bad habits by giving you an electric shock. Irony. Does does that not like spending $200 on Amazon to buy something that stops you from doing stupid things? (laughs) <laughs> so, so the device can, can uh, it stops you buying stuff more and stuff on Amazon. Yeah, yes, I'm, I see where I'm, you I'm looking there, directly at you. Dave. Yes, I know. Um, so, do, uh, connects directly to your iPhone or Android device and can train you away from bad habits with electric shock. So, according to the product description on Amazon, the bracelet is used by over fifty thousand people already uh, to break a range of habits from smoking to over like to oversleeping can you imagine like you hit snooze and next you know you got like twenty thousand volts through your head you know like the problem is a version therapy works so maybe we as humans are all uh kind of not as smart as we like to think we are and we need this product and we need to buy more things from amazon so that we can stop buying things that we don't need yeah but how does it stop you smoking like how does i mean how does it no yeah putting a chip in my mouth will i mean like a for, for the americans that's a Fry, yeah, just a French fry. But but doing that and the uh, the thing of smoking is quite similar. So like, yeah, hey, I I was just gonna go eat this leaf from yeah. my salad. Ah, yes. No, it's not a French fry. Very confusing. Like I'm almost. I'm almost tempted to just buy one of these to like see what happens. I wonder if it's data driven as well. Could you set something like where you have an if this then that recipe that comes out of your challenger bank, whereby if you spend money doing something like you, this is the third transaction in that pub in the space of an hour. <laughs> oh, man, it gets into like risk reward at that stage, doesn't it? Because it's like, I really want those chicken wings, but is it worth the electric shock? Well, but the food soaks up the alcohol. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like if anybody could do that, maybe like Simon Van Scalina could like sort that out. Like, I, I feel there. like he's already working on it and there's a drone involved. This, this story really made me laugh. I mean, like, would I want to feel both guilty and also get into physical pain by wearing this device? I mean, if I'm addicted to something, I'll just not wear it. 
So you're going to like just, I mean, it has to stay on you. There's got to be something that keeps it like the, it's like, um, what are those ankle bracelets they put on people? If you could just take it off, it defeats the point, doesn't it? I I imagine you have to set the rules as well. So you just lie when it comes to the rules. It will like set really easy targets. (laughs) So nobody's up for buying. Is it, am I alone in probably buying one of these over the weekend then? Wow, you're going to buy one of these? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, you have to have one. And, and are you going to set it up so that if you buy more silly stuff, that it will start zapping you? <laughs> Mr. Bought an Oculus Quest on the first day it came out. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, maybe it'll stop me playing on the Quest so much. <laughs> All right. On that note, while I trundle off to Amazon to buy one of those weird things, that wraps up another week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out a little bit more about you? So you can find me on Twitter at um, Shafali underscore G or on LinkedIn. Also, shameless plug, we are hiring like crazy too. So, What type of roles are you looking for? Um, literally everything across the board, tech, sales, operations. My favorite kind of thing whenever hiring as well is also if the role isn't there, click the button that says none of these as well. I just want to see if there's something there. Absolutely, and we'll the, find something. About 30% <laughs> of the people we get come through through that route. Yep. The weird and wonderful ones. <laughs> Dean, how about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, Dean Butler. Very good. Michael? I too am on LinkedIn, unless, of course, you're a recruiter, in which case, please leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an evergreen statement for everybody, isn't it? Um, they're just relentless, aren't they? It's you, amazing. Imagine what this guy gets, CEO and co-founder of 11FS. <laughs> I just can't, I can't go on the internet anymore. I need one of those electric shock things. <laughs> Simon. Uh, you can find me on, well, your favorite podcast client. Uh, check out Blockchain Insider episode 101, talking all about Facebook coin. And we also did an interview with the CFO of Binance. So that's well worth checking out. Very good. You can find me at David Breer on Twitter. Um, what do you think of today's stories? If you did enjoy the show, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. We really do love reading those reviews. Like, genuinely, I love reading those reviews, don't you? Yeah, well, um, my favorite is when you read them out loud in the office and then really struggle to read a bit and then bring the rest of the office into a high-pitched bit where I'm struggling to read it and then you sound like you're careful spoiling. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's the only way I know how to read. <laughs> On that note, goodbye. <laughs>